The Crime Tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others. Listener discretion is advised. Sarah Louise Kafferke was an outgoing, bubbly, beautiful 22-year-old, full of hopes, dreams and determination. Knowing that her life was beginning to spiral out of control, Sarah knew that she needed to make a change. An excerpt from her diary read, quote, I am going to return the favours to every single individual who I've encountered on this journey. I aspire to be the generous, amazing person that I once was. I respect all the amazing people in my life and I need to show them that. My actions will speak louder than my words, positively as opposed to the past. I will change. I will be me again. I will love again myself and life. End quote. Unfortunately, that change would never come. Due to many failures in the parole system, a violent offender was on the streets, and less than three months after that diary entry, Sarah Kafferke would cross his path. You are listening to The Crime Tree. I'm your host, Jasmine, and this is the story of Sarah Louise Kafferke. Sarah was born on the 20th of June 1990 in the outer western suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, and was the only child of Noelle Dixon and Adrian Kafferke. When she was around nine months old, the family moved from Victoria to Queensland for Adrian's work commitments, but when the pair split a couple of years later, Sarah and her mum Noelle would return to Melbourne and to the close-knit community they'd once called home. Bacchus Marsh is a township 50 kilometres northwest of Melbourne along the metropolitan urban fringe and at a near equidistance to the state's other major cities of Ballarat and Geelong. At the 2011 census, the Bureau of Statistics deemed Bacchus Marsh to be part of the Melbourne metropolitan area, but with a population of under 6,000 and with its surrounding farmland and agriculture, the region retains a level of rural distinctiveness and a survey from Aussie Home Loans found it to be the third best regional town for families to live in in all of Australia. Sarah grew up to be a very loving little girl, and in January 1996, at age five, she began her first school year. Koemadai Primary School was founded in 1863 and is nestled in a valley overlooking Lake Merrimoo, about 10 kilometres north of Bacchus Marsh. It has a small student population and retains a personal and family-orientated atmosphere. It was the perfect place for Sarah to thrive. She found a love for athletics, competing in the school's running and high jump events, and as she got older, sung with the Australian Youth Choir. Beginning Year 7 at Bacchus Marsh Grammar, her love for athletics and singing were gradually replaced with friends, makeup, and sleepovers. She loved acting and watching Ally McBeal at home with her mum and dreamed of becoming a lawyer. Unfortunately, at the age of 15, Sarah was diagnosed with acute severe bronchial spasms, a rare form of asthma which caused her bronchial tubes to collapse. Each attack was serious, requiring an emergency ambulance and hospitalisation. As her attacks became more frequent, Sarah missed a lot of school and struggled to catch up. Because Sarah didn't look unwell, she often felt misunderstood and didn't like having to explain to others that she had a problem. 
She turned to alcohol as a way of coping, falling in with the wrong crowd as she struggled to find her place. As she tried to finish her final year of school from home, Sarah started experimenting with illicit drugs, including marijuana, GHB and at times ecstasy. She already sought counselling in relation to her asthma, but extended this to include her drug use. Forced to put her studying aside, Sarah began work at the Golden Fleece Hotel in nearby Melton, where she served patrons in the bar and gaming lounge. Her friendly, polite and happy nature made her a much-valued member of staff, and she easily made new friends. Just after her 21st birthday in 2011, Sarah met her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Christopher Stewart. But after a couple of months dating, their relationship began to turn toxic. Christopher became controlling and verbally abusive towards Sarah after introducing her to the harder drug of crystal meth, or ice as it's locally known. Although Sarah soon fell into the vicious cycle of drugs, alcohol and abuse, those closest to her had no idea just how bad things had become. Eventually, she confided in her mother Noelle, and just as she'd always done, Noelle didn't criticise her only child, but offered her the love and support she needed. With her mother to lean on, in August 2012, Sarah voluntarily entered into a detox program, determined to once again become the person she used to be. With Christopher still in her life after finishing detox, it didn't take Sarah long to relapse, and in October 2012, she knew that she needed to break away from the crowd she was associating with if she wanted to get her life back on track. She told Christopher that their relationship was over, then booked herself back into detox and was due to re-enter the program on the 13th of November. Christopher, however, was not prepared to let Sarah go, constantly harassing and following her. When these antics failed to get Sarah to react in the way he wanted, he sent his 47-year-old drug dealer, Stephen James Hunter, to Sarah's work to scare her. Sarah had met Stephen Hunter before, and despite being completely unaware of his past, she later told her mother that she knew she was in trouble. But instead of doing what he was sent there for, Stephen befriended Sarah, promising not to let her ex hurt or frighten her any more. Sarah finally felt safe, and as long as she had Stephen Hunter in her corner, she knew Christopher would leave her alone. Along with the new friendship, however, came a steady supply of drugs and alcohol. But Sarah, although enjoying her newfound freedom, was still determined to enter back into detox in two weeks' time. Until then, though, she was going to have some fun. On Wednesday the 7th of November, Sarah and a female friend spent the night at Stephen Hunter's Backers Marsh residence at Unit 6, 1A Simpson Street, where the trio used GHB and smoked ice. The following day, having missed her shift at work, her employer let her go as she was becoming unreliable, but told her that she was welcome back after she had sorted things out. Sarah was disappointed in herself, but knew she'd be back on track soon as she was only days away from entering back into detox. On the evening of Friday the 9th of November, Noelle Dixon said goodbye to her daughter Sarah for the last time as she was heading out for the night. When Sarah hadn't returned home by Sunday, Noelle began to worry, and calls to her phone went unanswered. Concerned for Sarah's welfare because of her health problems, and after failing to locate her through friends and social media accounts, Noelle went to the Bacchus Marsh police station and reported Sarah as missing. As investigators gathered information from Noelle, Channel 9 broadcast a missing persons bulletin during their nightly news program. 
appealing to the public for any information on Sarah's whereabouts and to help locate her car, a silver Holden Astra sedan. Due to her medical condition, there were grave concerns for her welfare. Because of his prior threats against Sarah, her ex-boyfriend Christopher was quickly located and questioned by detectives. Christopher provided a solid alibi and was immediately ruled out as a suspect. Meanwhile, the media appeal helped to locate Sarah's vehicle, which had been abandoned in the Melbourne suburb of Maribyrnong. Her belongings, including her phone, purse and keys, nowhere to be found. Working their way through the list of people Sarah was known to have been in contact with in the past week, investigators came across a name they recognised, Stephen James Hunter. When contacted, he tells police that he had spoken on the phone with Sarah on the Friday evening and they'd organised to catch up the following day at his place, where they both drank alcohol that Sarah had bought on her way over and smoked ice. Later that day, at around 5.30pm, Stephen claimed to have travelled to his other residence at 90 Fongio Drive in Point Cook, where he spent the night. Returning to his Bacchus Marsh residence the following day, he said that Sarah and her vehicle were gone and he'd not been able to get in contact with her since. As he had left his house keys with Sarah when he'd left the day before, he had to get a friend to collect his spare keys from Point Cook so he could get back into his house. A check of Stephen's phone and message history and the CCTV footage of Sarah purchasing a four-pack of vodka cruisers on the Saturday afternoon seemed to corroborate his story. But with a rap sheet dating back almost 30 years, including a murder conviction, police knew they needed to take a closer look at this serious, violent offender. Stephen James Hunter was born on October 6, 1965, into a volatile household fueled by family violence, substance abuse, neglect and physical abuse. At the age of eight, he broke free from his locked bedroom to get help for his terrified mother, who had been beaten and tied to a chair by his father, who would then place his loaded shotgun into her mouth. Stephen first came to the attention of police in 1983 at the age of 17, after being convicted of burglary, theft and criminal damage after throwing a rock through a shop window and stealing a pair of gloves. That same year, he was convicted of assault and for carrying a weapon after getting into a fight over a girl. He was fined $800. By the time Stephen was 20 years old, he was working three different jobs, using speed and other drugs to stay awake, barely sleeping more than two hours each night. Senior high school student Jacqueline Matthews worked part-time alongside him at the Gladstone Park Safeway supermarket. A school friend of Jackie's told police at the time that Stephen was harassing her. He would try to kiss her in the supermarket storeroom and was constantly inviting her out for drinks or to go surfing with him. Offers she always turned down, knowing that he had a wife and baby son at home. On the evening of April 9, 1986, Stephen was seen running after Jackie as she left work at the end of her shift and began walking to her car. Co-workers reported that when Stephen returned to the supermarket later that night, he was wearing different clothes and his hair was wet. Jackie's body was found the next day in the back seat of her burnt-out car, which had been left in Keelaw at the Arundel Road Bridge facing the Maribyrnong River, not far from where Sarah Kapiki's vehicle would be found some 26 years later. At his 1988 murder trial, Stephen said that he had accidentally stabbed Jacqueline while trying to protect himself from her. He claimed that after she had finished her shift at the supermarket, 
she had offered to drive him back to his house to collect his keys, which he had forgotten to take with him to work that evening. But instead, she drove him down a secluded area, where she threatened him with a knife and made sexual advances towards him. A scuffle broke out where Jacqueline Matthews ended up being violently stabbed to death. The jury found him guilty of murder and the judge described his version of events as ridiculous and absurd before sentencing him to 16 years with a non-parole period of 13. Two years later, on February 26, 1990, Stephen Hunter managed to escape from Pentridge Prison and was chased through the streets before being quickly apprehended. He had another four months added to his sentence. In December 2000, Stephen was released on parole as soon as he became eligible. Less than 18 months later, he helped kidnap a man who we then bound, gagged and bashed in exchange for a $500 payment. Although he was not charged with these offences until August 2003, he was arrested shortly afterwards and had his parole cancelled for being in the possession of methamphetamines. Within two months, however, he was re-paroled and back on the streets. After failing to appear in court, it was not until April 27, 2005, that he was sentenced to four and a half years for false imprisonment, intentionally causing injury, theft and drug trafficking relating to his 2002 offences. This was later reduced to just four years by the Court of Appeal. Stephen James Hunter's parole period had ended just nine days before Sarah Kafferke was last seen on CCTV. Detectives decided that they needed to speak further with Stephen, so they attended his Bacchus Marsh residence on November the 14th, but found no one home and the unit was in darkness. Shining their torches through the windows, they could see boxes scattered throughout and the bath was filled with water. The following day, Wyndham detectives visited his Point Cook house, but once again no one was home. It appeared that Stephen Hunter had gone on the run. With search warrants in hand, crime scene investigators were able to enter the Bacchus Marsh unit on November 17th. Blood was found on the back of the sofa and covering a black leather jacket in the living room. It was apparent that a violent struggle had taken place. That same day, a search was also conducted at the Point Cook house. Upon entering the property, the foul odour of decomposition was unmistakable. This led detectives to a large green wheelie bin located in the attached garage. Blood was clearly visible on the outside of the bin and it appeared to be filled with cement. The bin was taken to the Forensic Science Centre where it was x-rayed. Entombed inside was the body of 22-year-old Sarah Louise Kafferke. When Sarah's mother was informed that she had been found, she responded with, Oh, that's good, not understanding the severity of what had happened. A nationwide manhunt for Stephen James Hunter was underway. News stations appealed to the public with warnings that he could be armed and is dangerous. Thanks to tip-offs, Stephen was arrested on November the 20th at an associate's apartment in Hawthorne. When asked if he knew why he was being arrested, Stephen responded with, Yes, murder. Under interrogation, Stephen initially denied any involvement in Sarah's murder, gradually offering little bits of information to the investigators. By the end of his interview, Stephen had fully admitted to the brutal killing, but has never told the full story or explained why. According to Stephen, Sarah was at his house on the afternoon of Saturday the 10th of November, where they drank alcohol and smoked ice. 
An argument broke out after he had found a syringe, and Sarah, thinking that he assumed it was her syringe, attacked him in anger, pushing and hitting him. In self-defence, he grabbed his hammer and struck her over the head, before beginning a frenzied stabbing attack upon her. Despite what he told police, it is widely believed that the reason he attacked Sarah was because he got angry after she rejected his advances. Sarah's body was kept in his unit for two days before wrapping her and putting her into the boot of his car. At 8.40pm on Monday the 12th of November, records show that he was at Bunnings Warehouse in Port Melbourne, where he purchased 20 litres of hydrochloric acid, three bags of rapid-set concrete, a bag of lime and a sheet of black plastic. He then drove to the Point Cook residence where he placed Sarah into the bin. Stephen told police that he had planned to take the bin and dump it out at sea, but that he had used too much concrete, which made the bin too heavy for him to move. Sarah's belongings were then taken elsewhere and thrown onto a big bonfire. Appearing in the Melbourne Supreme Court, charged with Sarah Kafiki's murder, Stephen displayed no emotion or remorse as he pled guilty. In Australia, a guilty plea to charges usually means that the offender is entitled to a minimum term, meaning that Stephen Hunter could one day be paroled and back on the streets. Addressing Stephen during sentencing, however, Justice Kevin Bell for the Supreme Court said, quote, You present a substantial risk of committing further crimes of violence, and it is unlikely that this risk will be significantly reduced due to the physical decline which you will experience in your old age. The community, especially young women, need protection from your propensity for extreme violence. End quote. Justice Kevin Bell then sentenced Stephen Hunter to spend the rest of his life in prison. Despite feeling that justice had been served for Sarah, her family wanted to know how this could happen, as less than two months earlier, another young woman was brutally murdered in Melbourne, also at the hands of a violent offender on parole. Just six weeks earlier, on September the 22nd, 2012, 29-year-old Jill Maher was attacked, raped and murdered by Adrian Bailey as she left a nightclub in the inner north Melbourne suburb of Brunswick. CCTV footage captured Jill walking down Sydney Road at 1.30am, closely followed by Adrian. Witnesses in the area heard a woman screaming at approximately 1.40am, but the screaming stopped before anyone could locate where it was coming from. Three days later, police released the CCTV footage to the public and Adrian was quickly arrested. At 4am on Friday, September 28, 2012, Jill's body was recovered from a shallow grave just north of Melbourne in Gisborne South. After being charged with Jill's murder, the full extent of Adrian's violent 22-year criminal history was revealed. At age just 19, he was charged with the rape of two 16-year-old girls in separate attacks. Sentenced to five years in prison, Adrian was released after serving just 22 months, admitting that he faked his way through a sex offenders program to gain his early release. In 2001, he was arrested and charged with the attacks and rape of five women over a six-month period. He served his minimum term of eight years before being released on parole. In February 2012, he was charged and pled guilty to the unprovoked attack on a man in Geelong. He was given a three-month sentence for this attack, but it was overturned on appeal and Adrian Bailey was free once again to walk the streets. The parole board was not notified of this attack as it was not a sex crime. 
An inquest into Sarah's death opened in 2015 and its findings revealed just how the system had failed her. An assessment prior to him being granted parole listed Stephen as a low risk of offending in the community when he should have been treated as a moderate to high risk and the caseworker and parole officer assigned to him after his release did not have the experience needed. He was able to easily manipulate them and began rearranging his appointments to when it was more convenient for himself to ensure his mandatory drug tests would come back clean. Conditions of his parole also stated that he was to receive treatment from a psychologist, but the psychologist's concerns and the results from his various behavioural programs were not communicated through from the corrections officer to the parole board, and the results from these sessions revealed that Stephen displayed a persistent aggression and hatred toward women. He also told the psychologist that he carried the desire to have sex with a corpse. He also openly reported to his caseworkers that he was taking drugs and described to them how good he felt after bashing a man at his local pub. Again, none of this information was passed on. Fiona MacLeod, the senior counsel for the Kafiki family at Sarah's inquest, said, quote, Sarah was a person whom we needed to protect. She was a person who the parole system failed, because if Hunter had triggered the alerts that he should have been back in jail to serve out the rest of his sentence, she would never have come across him. End quote. It was not until 2013, a year after the murders of both Sarah and Jill, that it was concluded that the system made it too easy for serious, violent and sexual offenders to obtain and remain on parole. The government then later introduced legislation to ensure people who re-offend while on parole will automatically have their parole cancelled or have it properly reassessed. And there is now a mandatory cancellation for violent and sex offenders who are convicted of the same type of offence while on release. A much needed change that unfortunately came too late for both Sarah Kafaki and Jill Maher. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the crime tree. All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the crime tree.